just to give you a, a note of encouragement before we dive in today, uh, this is one of those texts that God intends to get in your kitchen, so to speak, as my grandma used to say, and uh, rearrange some things in your life. So I want that to be known, and I want you to embrace that uh, this morning. At the same time, my hope and prayer at the start of the message is that as you marvel at the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus today, and you have grace extended to you, amen? My hope and prayer is that that grace would compel you to thrive under the sweetness of conviction, okay? What I mean by that is we have an enemy who will seek to accuse and give a word of condemnation this morning. You know full well in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. By all means, embrace conviction. By all means, embrace godly sorrow. But also be mindful of that legalist that resides inside of each and every one of us. That legalist will prompt you to charge on a path of self-reliance that will lead you to bewilderment and discouragement. My hope this morning is that in grace, you would be compelled to honor the Lord by seeing the fruit of the Spirit wrought in your life. We're going to sing in a moment, and I'm going to give you this. We're going to close with this very verse. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more of heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom. To this I hold, my only hope is Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but Christ in me. What a great way to start the morning, and we will end in the same way. If you'll bow your heads this morning, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we just sang a moment ago an old hymn that we love. That proclaims a verse, oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will see your lovely face. In that moment, we will be clothed in the blood-washed linen of Christ himself. And we will sing, as the psalm goes on to say, we will sing of thy sovereign grace. Father, we thank you for the sweetness that this morning has already been to put wind in our sails, to encourage us to fill us with hope and confidence in you. Lord, this all now ensures that I trust and pray that we would be in a posture where we are sitting on the edge of our seats and we are leaning into all that you have for us, for you desire to teach. Lord, you desire to expose. You desire to convict. But Lord, most importantly, you desire to not leave us where we are. You desire to change desire to change us into your likeness. And for this, we say thank you. We ask that you would have your way among us today for your glory, for the enriching of your church, for even our own flourishing as we walk in this life, desiring to be faithful unto you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We're going to be focusing on verses 22 through 23, but I want us to give a head start. Verse 14 of chapter 5, if you'll read along with me this morning, reads, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in our passage today, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you're taking notes this morning, the main idea to keep it very simple and plain would be the following. An empowered use of Christian freedom should produce a life that reflects the character of God. An empowered use of Christian freedom should produce a life that reflects the character of God. Now when we say freedom, and we just sung about it a moment ago, by freedom we mean we are set free from the curse of of sin through the grace of God that is found in Christ Jesus. There's no need... To add to the gospel. His work is sufficient. Amen? What was happening in Galatia was the exact opposite. You had a group of distorted individuals who were trying to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saying that Christ's work is great, but something else must be added. They were holding out to Jews and Gentiles alike that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul has to come in and... Reclaim the true gospel as revealed by God himself. No, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. We're going to sing in a moment. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but Christ in me. We have been set free from the curse of sin by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And now our life is an empowered use of that Christian freedom in that now we live by the spirit that resides within us. You see, once you are justified by his grace, and I trust that you are this morning. Once you have been set free from the curse that rests upon your shoulders because of your sin. And because of your rebellion, that now new life in Christ now results in ever-developing Christ-like character in your life. Why? It's because God's Spirit now lives inside of you. There's new life present where death used to reign. There's this new superior power that is within where the flesh once ruled and dominated your life. 
And so the, out of that life, that new life, comes fruit. Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. And what do these expressions of God's Spirit look like in your life? Well, it is the ninefold qualities that we see in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. It's ever-developing Christian character. And because you and I are often slow of hearing and definitely slow of living, God spells out for us what Christian character ought to look like. It's the manifestation of his own character in our life. If you've been with us the last several weeks in our Sunday school hour of Equip, you know we've been journeying through the book of Galatians. We've covered love, joy, peace. And those were all Godward aspects of the Christian life. Those three graces were to mark our attitude in relationship to God. Even earlier this Sunday, we found that Paul's description of spirit-produced character continues moving from those graces that mark our attitude in relationship, yes, toward God, but also to now those graces that mark our attitude towards other people. A few moments ago, we looked at patience and kindness and goodness. Some of you said, please, please, not another message after patience and kindness and goodness. It was enough conviction for several weeks on end to mull over just in that space. I would ask you this morning, Family of God, how have you done this week in the realm of patience and kindness and goodness? I would encourage you, cling to the righteousness that is yours in Jesus Christ, but embrace, embrace conviction that leads to repentance. Repent of impatience, unkindness, and all the stingy self-centeredness that resides within your life. This morning, we have the privilege of now still examining still more. More spirit-produced qualities that are to mark our attitude, this time toward ourselves, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We'll start with faithfulness. What an enormous word faithfulness is. In the late 1920s up to the 1930s, theological liberals had literally taken over the American Presbyterian Church. And there was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen who stood in their way in opposition to the tide of this liberal overthrow. And in his stand, Machen refused to support Christian missionaries whose thinking and convictions and principles who were deviating from the word of God. And for his crime, and that's exactly what many perceived it as being, Machen was defrocked in 1935, meaning he was deprived of his ecclesiastical status, he was stripped of his professional position within the church. This all ultimately led to a split in the Presbyterian church, after which Mason would soon die January 1st, 1937. On his tombstone in Baltimore, Maryland, is the following inscription to this day, faithful unto death, which is an exact reference to Revelation chapter 2. Verse 10, what a fitting epitaph for J. Gresham Machen's life. Why do I mention this historical reference? Friends, it's because J. Gresham Machen's life was undeniably marked by this specific aspect of Christian character mentioned here. You see, friends, when Paul is saying is that not only does the Spirit of God bring you to faith in Jesus Christ, and he does... 
But he also enables us to be faithful unto Jesus Christ. To put this another way, what God is saying here is, listen, to have faith in my son, to be justified in my sight because of your trust in his sufficient work on the cross for you. Well, then from that faith and trust, I then now respond in kind by making you faithful through my spirit. Faithfulness is a fruit of the spirit. It's evident that God resides within you. Which begs the question, what exactly is faithfulness? Friends, it's an enormous word. To put it simply, it conveys and expresses all of what it means to be loyal, to be trustworthy, to be dependable, and to be dependable in all matters of one's life. There's a quality, a fidelity about your life. And what is the basis for that kind of fidelity? And that kind of faithfulness. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's simply the manifestation of your God's character within you. Listen, one of the many aspects about God's character that we absolutely love and cherish here at North Lake Bible Church is that our God is completely and utterly faithful. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful. Through whom we were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this faithfulness, ponder for a moment, has massive implications for your life and my life in terms of how God treats you even now this very day. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, you know this text. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is what? Faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. To which we ask, well, what is it that he will bring to pass? Well, friends, you need but look one verse prior. Chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself, sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What will he bring to pass? Your sanctification, your conform, conformity into Christ's likeness, your preservation, your transition from this broken planet into glory. God is faithful. He will bring it to pass. Do you believe this? Paul says God is faithful. We just sang a moment ago, even when I stumble, even when I fall, even when I turn back, still your love is sure. You will not abandon. You will not forsake. You will cheer me onward with never-ending grace. What a beautiful line. God is faithful. Friends, this is in stark juxtaposition to you and I, is it not? I don't know about you. It's safe to say, I think humanly speaking, we're all this way, but we're pretty moody creatures, right? We're up one day and we're down the next. Aren't you grateful that your God that you worship and your God that you belong to is not remotely like that? He is faithful. He is forever true. To his character, 
and to his word. We can rely on this, yes? 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, and we often are, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. This is why when John saw Jesus Christ in a vision while being in prison on the Isle of Patmos, John not only said that the message he was receiving was from the faithful one, Revelation 1.5, but he also said that he saw Christ sitting on a white horse and he who sat on him is called faithful and true. Revelation 19.11. Church, this is the God that you love today. This is the, the God that you belong to. This is the God that we've gathered to worship and exalt. And his people all throughout redemptive history have cherished and relied upon this beautiful aspect of his character. Jeremiah declared, even shouted from the rooftops, in the day when sorrow filled every home and lament devoured the land. So much so that the book that resulted from his proclamation is a book we now call Lamentations. You know Lamentations 3.22. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. For his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is thy, say it with me church, faithfulness. Friends, the logic should be very plain to you this morning. It should be clear. If God is faithful, and he is, and if God lives inside of you, and he does, then we too will be faithful. Everyone see the logic? Our response to God's faith evokes the gift of his spirit, and his spirit then makes us faithful in him. They're one and the same. To which we then have to ask, if we be good students of God's word and lovers of him, well, what does faithfulness look like? I want to be faithful in devotion to my Savior. Wait, I hear what you're saying, what faithfulness is. I've, I've got the definition, but where exactly does the rubber meet the road? Where does a character of fidelity show up? Well, friends, we live in a world... And we noted earlier, verses 19 through 21, we live in a world marked by dissensions and divisions and jealousy. Which were just some of the gross qualities that resulted from living under the reign of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. God's children are to be remarkably different. Their lives are to be marked with loyalty, dependability. But unfortunately... All too often, God's people are marked by faithlessness. Husbands and wives vow to be faithful to one another and then break those vows. Men, those pornographic images on your computer betrays your fidelity to your wife. Wives and husbands alike, that relationship in your life outside of your spouse that is marked by flirtatious interactions and dangerous thoughts is a violation of those vows you promised to be loyal to. Men, the mantle of spiritual leadership rests solely upon your shoulders. How are we doing? Are we leading our wives? Are we leading our children? Are we faithful? It's not the only place that faithlessness shows up. 
Many times Christians are just as faithless in their work ethic as unbelievers. They're late to work, they leave work early, they cut corners, they slack on their responsibilities. Friends, what Paul is saying here is that that type of conduct is unbecoming of the people of God. It should never mark the people of God. We should be a people faithful to the Lord and to our word. And since God is the God of all of life, what does this mean for us? We are to be faithful in all of life. You see, there is no area too small that faithfulness does not touch. Every task from carrying out the trash to paying your bills, this is convicting for me, from returning your phone calls to preparing that Sunday school lesson for three to five-year-olds here at Northlake to serving in nursery, All of them are to be seen as Christian duties. We are to be faithful in cooking and cleaning and teaching and fixing. And yes, even praying and everything in between. We are to be faithful. Now some in this life are going to be called to be faithful in jail. Like John Bunyan. Others are going to be called to be faithful before the hangman's noose like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So others will be faithful before the stake, like Thomas Cranmer or the Reformation. And whether or not that's your fate or my fate, we do not know. But what we do know is that whatever God has in store for your life, we are to strive to be faithful in the little things of life. Everything. From changing a diaper to serving abroad for the sake of the gospel. I want to encourage you this morning, that only happens. That only happens. By the Spirit's help. Amen. God makes us faithful before him. Our lives are marked by dependability, trustworthiness. We are loyal unto him, unto his purposes, unto his will for our life. Do people know you as faithful? The second grace of God's Spirit that should mark our attitude at this particular juncture is gentleness. Another word for this is meekness. The world tends to think of meekness, or in this case gentleness, as often being weakness. But the two should never be confused. Numbers 12.3 says that Moses was one of the meekest and gentlest of men, but nobody would look at Moses' life, (laughs) who traveled 40 years in a desert and led 2 to 3 million complaining Israelites, And accused the man of being insipid or spineless. He was not weak. Moses was a man of real strength. But the Bible says he was gentle. He was meek. Indeed, as all of God's people ought to be. In the late 1800s, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a self-confessed nihilist and one who vehemently opposed the Christian faith said that the West, through science and secular humanism, had virtually killed God by proving his non-existence. And one of Nietzsche's accusations and complaints against Christians was the following. They lack clenched fists, which was Nietzsche's way of saying they're weak. Well, friends, that is a distorted view of what it is to be strong. See, Nietzsche's views are what what would pave the way for what we know as Nazism. Nazism is not strength, but bullying. No, make no mistake about it. God's people are commanded to be strong. 
Be on the alert. Stand firm in your faith. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Ephesians 6, 10. We are to be strong. You see, meekness or gentleness is not a lack of strength. Gentleness is strength that's held in its proper place. In fact, the word gentleness is actually a very helpful word picture for you and I. Gentleness is used to describe an animal that's been tamed or brought under control. And if you've ever interacted with a beast of burden, whether it be a, an ox or a horse or even an elephant, you know full well they do not lack for strength. No, their strength is simply held in its proper place. It's simply under control. And that is what Paul is saying the Spirit of God produces in the people of God. The meek person is the person who, yes, knows his or her strength, but submits that strength to Christ in a ministry of love and caring for others. It's our will brought under his will. Our desires submissive to his desires. Our strength is tamed. Any notion of self-autonomy that exists within us is thrown out the window. This is gentleness, meekness. Where does this specific aspect of Christian character reveal itself in life? Well, the easy answer is to say everywhere, and that would be accurate. Gentleness works itself out in life in a host of different ways. Let me just give you three. Number one, gentle people are contented people. Gentle people are contented people. The person who is gentle is the person who always accepts God's dealing with them as being good. We sang in a moment ago, God is good. God is good. We don't buck against what he's ordained for our life. We don't resist his sovereign will in the details of our day. No, we receive every event and every circumstance as being from God's own hand. And we are resolved to believe that our God knows what he is doing better than you and I do. Yes? Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes for a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes actually turned to chapter 3. As you make your way there, the Lord's third beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and 7, he said, the Lord says, blessed are the meek, right? And if you know the context of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the kind of per- person who's faithful and submissive to God, even in the midst of trial. Blessed is the person who is meek. You see, gentle people don't dispute against the plan of God. They're contented. They say with Solomon, Ecclesiastes 3.1, there's an appointed time for everything. And there's a time for every event under heaven. Everything has been ordained in the providence of God. His plan encompasses the day of my birth to the day of my death. He's planned my birthday to the day of my funeral. And everything in between. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. I know. Church, I want to encourage you. Is this your confession this morning? I know that everything God does will remain forever. Pause there for a moment and let that soak in. There is nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it. For God is so worked that men should fear him. How many of you can say that with every fiber of your being? I know that everything 
God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it. Since some of you know the pain of bearing a child or bearing a spouse, some of you have seen the frailty of life through the eyes of cancer or a miscarriage. Others of you have felt the emptiness of alcohol and lust and greed. Christians, what are you and I to do when we face the pain and frailty of this life under the sun? God, I know everything that you do will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. The Spirit then enables us to face said events, face said trials with meekness and with gentleness that produces contentedness. That heaviness of our sadness is relieved in exchange for gladness in the plan of God. God, you know what you are doing. Because you know what happens when we are a discontented people? We begin to think in our own strength, in our own notion of self-autonomy, that perhaps we know better than God does. No meekness, strength under control, in submission to Christ, will produce contentedness. Contentment in your life. Gentle people are contented people. Second, gentle people are no doubt teachable people. James 1.21 says that we are to receive the word with all humility. And our humility grows out of us knowing both our strength as well as our weakness. And knowing both our strength and our weakness, what does it do? It produces in us an openness to God. And produces in us an openness to others for the perfecting of our own life. I welcome rebuke and correction. People know that they can approach me because I'm teachable and humble. I'm gentle, meek. I'm not saying that of myself. I'm hypothetically speaking. The Spirit produces this in us. To be gentle means I know I don't have it all together. And I don't. And so I not only need the correction from God's word, I'm desperate for God's correction. God, you know full well my deficiencies, more than I even do. Would you teach me? See if there be any offensive way within me and lead me on the way to everlasting. I need the loving correction of other believers in my life just as you do. People who will speak truth into my feelings. And those feelings can be errant feelings, yes? You show me a person who gladly receives the word of God. And you show me a person who gladly receives the rebuke or correction of a friend. And I'll show you someone who the spirit of God has made to be meek or gentle. They're malleable. Gentle people are contented people, teachable people. Third, gentle people are considerate people. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, if as a church we are a group of people who are gentle, 
that means we have Christ-honoring relationships that exist in this fellowship. A group of people in this room who, who never have any thoughts or desire for revenge or retribution towards other people, regardless of how that person may have offended you. Why is that the case? Why do you not have a desire or thought for retribution or revenge? It's because when you are gentle, strength under control, submissive to Christ, when you are meek in this way by the Spirit's prompting, means you are ever submissive to the will of God. You accept His dealings with us as always, always, always being good. Such that retribution and revenge are not ours to dispense, is it? That belongs to the Lord. It's not upon our shoulders to gird up our own strength and dispense justice. That belongs to the Lord. Gentle people know this and embrace this in life. They're contented people. They're teachable people. They're considerate people. They're, as Ephesians 4 says, humility, gentleness, patience, other really descriptors of what we saw earlier in the fruit of the Spirit in Sunday school. And so that with the Spirit's help, we are a people who actively pursue such meekness and such gentleness. 1 Timothy 6.11 But free, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and here it is, gentleness. Paul says, if you have been raised up with Christ, and indeed you have, if you are his today, then put on gentleness as a garment around your neck. Meekness, gentleness, strength under control, submissive to the will of God. The third grace of God's spirit that we look at this morning is the list ends with the following, and that is self-control. Self-control. Take a deep breath. Okay, self-control. In the second century, there was a heretical Christian group called the Incritites. This group, they were ascetic, meaning that they held out and insisted that you had to abstain from marriage and wine and meat in order to be a Christian. But church, that is a gross, gross misunderstanding of what Paul is saying here by self-control. Self-control has to do more with the mastery of oneself. Not necessarily the suppressing of all of your desires like the Buddhist neighbors of us espouse today. It's mastery of oneself. It's, it's to be used both to refer to an athlete's discipline of his body. As well as to the Christian's refusal to give free reign to impulses and desires. 2 Timothy chapter 3, one of the many ways Paul described those who don't believe in Christ is that there are people who lack self-control. 2 Timothy chapter 3, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gospel, gossips, here it is, without self-control. Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What a list. 
holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, while this may be true of unbelievers, and all the more so as the day approaches of the Lord's return, one thing we know from both experience and Scripture is that even a believer can exhibit a lack of self-control from time to time, yes? If you are here today and you profess to be in Christ, you are to grow in self-control. And just to avoid the tragedy where we simply talk about this grace of the Spirit solely in theoretical terms, let's talk about where self-control shows up in life. Let me give you three key areas, and they're not exhaustive. Areas where we always need to be growing in self-control. One is our tempers. Our tempers. James 1.19, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The Proverbs have a great deal to say about anger. Why? It's because we have a propensity of climbing fool's hill, do we not? We are naturally prone to foolishness. And one of the many ways that foolishness shows up in our life is through an unbridled temper. Proverbs 29, 22, an angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Unbridled anger in our lives, tempers, which are not held in check by the Spirit of God and the grace of self-control, absolutely wreaks havoc in your life. It always leaves a wake of destruction. You hurt people, you destroy relationships, and you leave an indelible mark on individuals you're called to love. Bless and influence. As Solomon said, it always stirs up strife. Or to put it another way, it typically leads to still greater expressions of the deeds of the flesh you can see in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Dissensions, factions, jealousy. The flip side of this is that to have mastery over one's temper has the joy of sparing someone the great heartache and sorrow of regretted wrath. Anyone ever become angry and instantly regret it? Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. 12, 16, a fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. 19, 11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Proverbs go on and on and on. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Friends, you want to know what rug to look under in your life to see whether or not self-control can be found? Just look into how quick you become angry and express that anger. Second area of which mastery is to be enjoyed and experienced by God's Spirit's help, is our tongues. Proverbs 12, 18, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Eighteen twenty one: Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. One more, Proverbs 10, 19, where there are many words. We say this a lot in my home. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. 
You're familiar with the book of James, no? After the book of Galatians in the Sunday school hour, we're going to be walking through the book of James. You know James chapter 3, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among its members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. James has just finished saying that our tongue is like a bed in a horse's mouth or a rudder on a large ship, a spark that ignites a wildfire. So as to say, you see, our tongues are very, very small, but it boasts of great things. It's little to be sure, but it has an insane capacity to produce destruction in your life. Such that James says, he who is able to control his tongue is able to bridle his whole body as well. Friends, God's spirit helps us have mastery over our speech, our tongues. As David said in Psalm 141.3, God literally places a guard over the door of our mouth. He keeps watch over the door of our lips, such that the Spirit then gives us the grace to control what we say so that what we say is only that which is edifying to others and pleasing to the Lord. The third area of which self-control is to be exhibited are our sexual desires. There are an inordinate amount of references to this in the book of Proverbs still. But for the sake of time, let's be reminded of the life of one individual and that is King David. The life of David provides us with some very interesting cameos regarding this matter of self-control, one positive and one grossly negative. We've already briefly examined how self-control shows up in regards to our temper. You just ponder David's life for a moment. You see in 1 Samuel chapter 24 through 26 how self-control showed up in David's life where David resisted the temptation to do what? He resisted the temptation to kill Saul, even though he had, perhaps some might say, justifiable cause, an opportunity to kill the very one who was seeking to kill him. David exercised restraint. He spared the life of Saul in a cave at En Gedi, and again in Saul's tent on the hill of Hakalah. But then you fast forward, while he's exhibited self-control in that instance, You turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we read the tragic story of David's failure to exercise self-control and how he yielded to temptation in that moment. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and commissioned the murder of her husband Uriah. Friends, we learn from these incidents that that on occasions when he exercised self-control, what was true about David in that instance, David was focused on the sovereign will of God. He was conscious that in spite of being hunted, Saul was still the Lord's anointed. And he dared not lay a hand on his head. He was submissive to the will of God. He was self-controlled in a moment of opportunity where he could enact retribution. I have no doubt that David could have convinced himself and even persuaded others that killing Saul was the right thing to do. But... Rather, he chose rather to exercise self-control in the face of temptation. That was not the case in the instance with Bathsheba. David chose self-gratification rather than self-control. On that occasion, he was not focused on the will of God, but on his own wicked will. 
The results of that shift of focus, you know full well from the rest of 2 Samuel, was disastrous. Here's the godly principle here for you and I. Self-control over our sexual desires. This that the Spirit of God works into our lives not only pleases the Lord, but it also spares us from great harm and great loss. Destroyed relationships, fractured trust, a name that has been tarnished. I want to encourage you this morning. I don't know where you are in this particular area, but God's Spirit, I need you to listen to me. God's Spirit enables mastery over every facet of your being. That includes your temper, that includes your tongue, and yes, that includes all sexual desires. God enables mastery over every area of life. Are you desperate for his work and leading in your life? Are you content to reside in the same state, same patterns, and same habits that you've known for quite some time? I want to encourage you this morning with just a few things to end. When we look at faithfulness, gentleness, or meekness, and self-control, I need you to know, number one, is that fruit bearing is beyond you. What do I mean by that? Fruit bearing is beyond us. Listen, left to ourselves, we are horrible grace culturers. Grace harvesters, we are not. Despite what fallen man may think, man is not intrinsically good or capable of this list in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. You are not capable. You know what you are capable of? Verses 19 through 21. Those come natural to you. And despite what arrogant humanity may think, you do not have a spiritual green thumb. You have to avail yourselves to the means of God's grace that he's given to you so that these qualities and characteristics that come from his spirit so that they may abound in your life. Do you avail yourself to those means of grace? Do you know that fruit bearing is beyond you? That you are desperate for God to intervene? For God to produce these things? Are you relying upon him? Or do you rely upon self? Your own efforts? I assure you, you will be disappointed and discouraged time and time and time again. If you rely solely on self. Fruit bearing is beyond you. Secondly, fruit bearing is still hard work. It is true that we work the deeds of the flesh. But that should not be seen as implying that bearing fruit requires no work on our part. To bear fruit, we still have to battle weeds, battle bugs, battle pests and pestilence, parasites. We have to eradicate. Our pastor often uses the illustration in a marriage, right? Every day, just pulling up weeds. Why? Because you don't want the ground to be to persist and be overtaken with a bunch of weeds, conflict, unresolved. We're to be constantly tending, working, active. And in that labor and in that strain, we ensure that we are readily positioned to receive all the assistance, and God offers great assistance. We ensure that we were readily positioned to receive all the assistance that God's Spirit desires to give you. 
Growth in Christ likeness is not an automatic process to which you say, yeah, I know that anecdotally in life. And so I want to ask you this morning, with all the love in the world, how are the homes represented in this room, how are the homes doing? Husbands, wives, mothers, grandparents, fathers. Are those homes, are those relationships bound up in this room, are they filled with the very fruit of the Spirit that we see here? See, if the Spirit of God resides within you this morning, that Spirit desires to permeate and affect every area of your life, in public, in private, in marriage, in parenting, and yes, even in this church. To walk by the Spirit is to literally reflect the character of the one that we love and belong to. How's your reflection? How are you doing? Third and finally, fruit bearing is revealing. Fruit bearing is revealing. An inventory of spiritual fruit, and I encourage you this week to spend some time. Look at this list. An inventory of spiritual fruit in your life will tell you a lot about where you stand before the Lord. I want to be very careful here. I want to be very precise, so I need you to listen. For the sake of being clear, I need you to hear me that fruit bearing is not what justifies you. Do you hear me? Fruit bearing, let me say it again. Fruit bearing is not what justifies you. Fruit bearing is what expresses your justified state. Why? Because you are now a new creation, you are indwelt by God himself. And he will not leave you. Listen, he will not leave you as you are. Always growing always moving. It may not always be at the speed that you like or that he likes, but moving. Direction, not perfection, right? At the same time, some of you here today are not in Christ. You've never, in any form or fashion, placed your trust and confidence in the finished work of Christ to save you from your sin. I tell you this morning, the fruit of the Spirit is an outward indicator of salvation as well, right? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. It may very well be that you be not in Christ. If that's the case, let that today be the, be the day of salvation. God, I have nothing to offer to you but brokenness and bankruptcy. I have nothing. I cannot sing of the hope that we just sang of a moment. You have to save me. Would you wash me clean? Would you remove my sin as far as the east is from the west? Would you cover me with your grace and lavish me with the righteousness that does not belong to myself but belongs to your son? God, would you give that to me? I turn from my rebellion and place my trust in you. That can be yours today. But I also want to encourage you if you be in Christ this morning. And some of you are in every bona fide way. I would encourage you here is to be careful. Be careful of that legalist within you. Watch out. By all means, embrace whatever spirit-wrought conviction the Lord desires to work this morning. But close your ears to the accusations of condemnation that your enemy wants to speak to you today. 
banish any notion that you have to somehow add anything to the gospel in order to get into God's, again, good graces. I need to be clear about this. You are saved. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Are you grateful for this this morning? Are you grateful for this? Some of you will leave this place feeling like you have to measure up. That is not the desired intent of this text. You should be so overwhelmed with the grace that you've already received that you now want this list to be manifested in your life. You don't want to manifest this life in order to merit God's good graces. I I can't approach God in prayer until I get enough self-control over here underway. Until I'm appropriate degree of meekness. I dare not show my face. I cannot sing these songs. No, you can sing these songs. Why? Because of grace. It's always been because of grace. I want to end in the same way that we began a second ago. We're going to sing this in a moment. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more of heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom. To this I hold, my only hope is Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine, I can sing all is mine. What church? Yet not I, but Christ in me. Do you believe this? You believe it? Stand to your feet. I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer. The music team will come. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the surgical precision that you use your word. Our pastor covered Hebrews chapter 4 not long ago. You, you cut and divide and get down to joint and marrow, Lord. We thank you for this work of kindness in us. We thank you that you are a God who, yes, saves us by your grace, but you do not leave us as we are. Part of your expression of kindness to us is that you aggressively and constantly and faithfully work to shape us and form us into the likeness of your Son. Father, we pray that you would find our hearts to be humble and teachable. If there's any area of which we need to confess things before you today, Lord, may the confessing abound. If there's any relationship that needs to be made right, Lord, would you give us grace to do so? as a response to your grace towards us. Lord, we pray that the enemy would have no no room to work in this place and among these people. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's forgiveness. Make us a motivated people, overwhelmed by your grace, to the end that we would live lives which are faithful, gentle, and marked by self-control, thus by your Spirit's enabling. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.